Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. Today is the 36th episode of my monthly feature, Our Voices, an inside look into a life journey that's likely quite different than yours. We'll discuss ways to accelerate social change that level the playing field and help everyone live to their full potential. I encourage you to listen with curiosity and without judgment to this account of what it means to grow up, learn, struggle, work, and live in our world. My guest today is a brilliant mind with many insights professionally and personally. She's a highly sought after speaker with over 15 years of developer relations leadership experience. Previously VP of developer strategy at Cisco, she's currently chief marketing officer for Pangea Cyber. I'm pleased to welcome to the show an amazing advocate for diversity, my friend, Grace Francisco. Grace, welcome to Our Voices. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. It is my treat, and I'm thrilled for us to reconnect. We have to do a shout out for the International Women's Forum to thank them for us crossing paths last year. Um, and since then, you've moved into cybersecurity. So we're, we're looking forward to how you're finding this space um, but what I'd love first, Grace, is for listeners to get to know you, to hear about your early years, what's made you, you. Yeah, well, that is a very long and complicated story. Um, and I'm not even sure where to start. Let's see. Um, I I immigrated to the United States when I was three years old from the Philippines. I was the youngest of four girls. Now, I will say that when I was born, that my father started passing out cigars in the hospital because he was so very sure that at that point, at last, this one must be a boy, right? Because he's already had three girls. This last, this fourth one, me, had to be a boy. Well, oops, nope, not so much, dad, another girl. Um, But I will say that uh, that did shape me growing up because I ended up being the quote-unquote this term that we used to use a lot, and I, I hopefully it's not an offensive term, but um, I it, back then when I was growing up, it was referred to as a tomboy, which meant like I was a not a very girly girl. I grew up fishing, playing tennis with dad, fixing the car, helping him with plumbing. Definitely not the typical girly girl things that kids who were girls back then in uh, U.S. culture grew up doing. So I was a very different kind of kid. I think the other thing that shaped me growing up was, one, I was very deeply shy, like painfully shy, so much so that I remember when my parents had anybody over the house, when I was young, I would go hide in a corner and just like crawl away. And I remember their friends making fun of me and laughing. And that made it so much worse. Like, oh God, they're looking at me. Please don't look at me. I don't want to talk to anybody. Um, And I was a bookworm. I loved, loved, loved reading. I loved, um, I loved math. When I was introduced to math, I was that kid that would finish um, math exams so quickly. It was just such a uh, delightful experience for me because it was a game. 
in my mind. And so I loved uh, doing math assignments. And I was so engaged at school that I started being a TA for my teachers in elementary school. I think as early as second or third grade, the teachers are asking me to help them with grading assignments because I was always finished with classes with my assignments so early that I had a lot of free time. Um, And that also turned into, I think it was in second or third grade, uh, that teacher allowing me to use the the closet, which is a very long closet for our coats. And I would go in there when I was finished with my work and they would, you know, they would ask me like, what do you want to learn? And so I, I taught myself Spanish <laughs> in second or third. I can't remember if it was second or third grade because they didn't want me to be bored. They just saw me like I would finish. And so they would try to keep me productive and have me either helping them with correcting assignments or grading assignments or, you know, doing other work. And so I was that kind of weird um, kid. Um, and, you know, and the, the other thing is I was very different from an early age. And I think this started to happen um, and was much more apparent when I was, I think, third or fourth grade. And that was, I suffer from this condition um, that only, at least back then, was less than 0.6, not 6%, 0.6% of the world population suffers from this condition called hyperhidrosis. And this is a genetic condition, has nothing to do with being nervous or anything like that. And hyperhidrosis is this extreme version of sweating, where in, in most cases, it's it appears in the hands or the feet. And, you know, for me, it appeared with like swollen hands and sweaty hands where I could literally stand and a puddle would form underneath my hands. Uh, it was terrible. And it was a terrible experience, mostly because people just couldn't understand why someone would have this strange condition. It wasn't something that I could help, obviously, but it was very confusing to grow up that way as a kid to have people treat you like this sweaty mess or really being treated like a leper, like an untouchable kind of person because it was something they couldn't relate to. It was so bad that there were days where I would actually wish, you know, maybe it would have been better if I had been born with like a disability where I couldn't walk or I was blind because at least that was something that people kind of understood. They just couldn't understand someone who had like sweaty, swollen hands. And that the only other time that I had ever heard of anybody else in the world having it was in this show that was one of these shows that sort of showed extreme things. And I remember thinking, wow, they're actually showing this family that has this condition with several people in family. And it didn't feel good because they were treated kind of like freaks on the show. And so that, you know, growing up that way and having to sort of sustain the sort of remarks, not just about being, you know, the the usual things, being an immigrant family. One, you know, I came from an Asian country. So, you know, being in a primarily uh, white school district, you know, you get the typical things that happen. They're actually Latino, white, black, but not many Asian people, at least at the time for me growing up. And so I was one sometimes referred to as a chink, which didn't feel good. So I'm like, okay, I think you mean Chinese, but I'm not Chinese. I'm Filipino. (laughs) And so that was hard to deal with as a kid. And then there was the, on top of all the things that I deal with being quote unquote, a nerd and, you know, really into math and all these things, which were not, you know, seen as cool things, obviously, as a kid. 
the other was just um, this special condition that I had to grow up with where it was very difficult to make friends as a result. Now, and you know, this is a condition that you know, obviously was not my fault. This happened to be something that I grew up with. And, you know, growing up in isolation like that is, is hard. And I sometimes look back and I think, I don't know where I had that willpower to keep going despite that sort of isolation and loneliness. Um, and I will say, sometimes I credit American TV being an outlet for me to feel like, okay, there's like a human connection, even if I just have TV um, for some part of it, because I didn't grow up with pets or anything else. And my sisters had their own sort of world of struggles. So there wasn't a deep connection there either. I can go on and on about that. But um, This is so I'm really relating. So, you know, you know, as an adult now, my heart is just on the floor for a youngster, you know, just kind of feeling so alone. And were your parents able to, with this hyperhidrosis, able to be a source of comfort or, you know, and I, and I guess you didn't have the sisterhood. So I mean, was there any family support for that? So sadly, I didn't have um, a whole lot of parental support either growing up. So while you know, dad, you know, took me, he dragged me to go fishing and to help him with the car and the plumbing. These were like obligations. He saw these weren't like fatherly father, daughter, like great moments in time. These were just, you know, I'm going to drag you to go do these things. He was not a very warm person. In fact, there were many times growing up where, and this is also an awful thing to put a, a child through into sort of labeling them as useless or stupid um, and that, that happened, uh, multiple times, uh, growing up and that that's awful when you've got such a hardworking kid who does their chores by other, you know, parent standards, a perfect child. Um, and, you know, mostly straight A's, I will say mostly, cause there were a few times where it wasn't, you know, it was like an A minus maybe, or a B plus, which is still pretty good by most parent standards, but not good enough for my father. Um, and so that was unfortunate. My mom and I had a little bit of a different relationship when I was really young. And then for some reason, as I got older and I was, you know, in my teens, not so much. There were sometimes that she was um, supportive because I remember playing tennis and she would, if she knew I had a major game the next day, would make me a special dinner as an example, but it was sort of sporadic. And I think that was partially because she also suffered a lot um, having a husband who was often cruel to her. Um, and so, you know, when I look back at that now as an adult, I can kind of understand why she, she was unable to always be there for me as a supportive mother, given the conditions she had to deal with having a husband like that. So, and I mean, I think for me, I have a little bit more forgiveness for my mother, uh, given that. Um, and we did have a, a special relationship when I was an adult where of the four girls, she she told me at some point, and I, I thought this, and I've always remembered this, she said to me, don't ever be a stay-at-home wife. And I, I remember being shocked that she said this because all my other Sisters were told by both parents, you know, you're going to be a stay-at-home wife, you're going to be a nurse, you're going to be a teacher. Those are your choices in life. That was it. That was very <laughs> sort of typical back then for like Filipino girls. That was, those were well, nurse, 
you know, teach your wife. And my mother said, don't ever do that because you will be bored and miserable. You know, go do something else, go work. <laughs> and I'm ever grateful that she she actually said that to me because um, that has helped me so much in my life and, and the decisions that I've made about work and work-life balance and responsibilities in terms of uh, finances and how I look at the world. And uh, that, that helped a lot. And I, I still remember that being such an unusual thing for her to say. Um, and I think it was in part because she felt at some point she didn't have choices. And I had many conversations with her when I was an adult about you know, options that she had. Uh, but being a traditional Filipino family and, you know, most many Filipinos grew up Catholic. Uh, you, there is no such thing as divorce. Um, and so that that was an unfortunate thing for my mother. Yeah, the this is so fascinating that um, I didn't realize this about um, you know not a lot of warmth and how you found a way to show warmth to people. I mean, you know, but it's not modeled for you. I am curious. Did you have other role models or other relatives who maybe were? shining light uh, to show you a different way? I did. I had a, a few, not a lot. Um, so one was my fifth grade teacher, Miss Barbara Rolap, was a wonderful, wonderful person who, after I left fifth, fifth grade, and she did this with several students over the years, um, we would write each other every year, particularly around Christmas time. And that gave me an outlet of like human engagement where I knew someone cared about me. And she was, in fact, while I was in fifth grade, she was the person that had to convince my parents to take me to the eye doctor because I could no longer see the chalkboard. And I was sitting at the very front of the classroom and I couldn't see it. Uh, my parents, when I had you know, asked them initially, thought I was trying to be vain and wanted glasses just for fashion sake. Like, what fifth grade kid asks to be dragged to the optometrist to get glasses. There's just no way. But my parents had like a very strange way of thinking sometimes. So my fifth grade teacher, Miss Barbarola, had to convince them to take me. And thank God, because by then, when they actually took me, I had to wear Coke bottle glasses. They were so thick that and heavy that because this is well before the super thin plastic lenses that you can get today. Oh my God, the they were so heavy that they would cut into my ears. They were so heavy. So I would have like painful cuts on my, my earlobes from the glasses sitting uh, and resting on my ears. Um, and so, you know, thankfully she, she would, you know, speak up for me and help with things like that. And she just, while she was a very, I think other students thought she was very stern and strict, but she had actually a warm soul and she really went out of her way to keep in touch with particularly students like me who had very difficult family situations. And she was a lifeline. Uh, she was just a sheer lifeline for me every year, even if it was like once or twice a year where we were writing back and forth. And, you know, silly me, it took me well into my late 20s to realize, wait a minute, Miss Rolap is not that far from me. I should take her out for breakfast after all these years. And so in my late 20s, I started to at least see her in person. 
and she was such a wonderful, warm, encouraging and supportive person. And I miss her. Um, when I moved from California to Pennsylvania in uh, March of 2020, I was grateful that I'd seen her at, towards the end of 2019. I still have a photo of her coming to her house in California. And that time she had brought this handmade ornament that I had made for her in that fifth grade year. She kept it all those years and brought it uh, with her to show me that she had kept it. Um, and I had written something on the ornament, something about like best teacher ever um, on there. And I was just so happy to see this thing. I took a picture of that ornament. She passed away when she finally went into a retirement home in, uh, I think it was 2021. And I was really sad to hear that shortly after her moving into that retirement home that she had passed away. But she'd had a, a full life and had, you know, hung out with the other retired teachers and gone to see shows. She would always come and tell me about the wonderful like musicals and any you know, other theater um, productions she'd seen in San Francisco. And she was she was a lifeline. The other person who was a lifeline for me was um, this person who took a, a risk on me. I had been going to this program called um, National Junior Tennis League every summer. And this is a uh, nonprofit association that was established by the famous um, tennis player named Arthur Ashe. And he established this program for inner city kids like me to keep them out of trouble in the summer. It was free and they would hire teachers to teach the kids how to play tennis. And if you went to a certain number of classes during that summer program, you would earn a free tennis racket. So I've been going to this thing every summer for years and then uh, one of the lead teachers for the program, Steven Strazier, um, said to me, hey, you know, why don't you help and be a teacher this year? I think I was 16 at the time and I was one, I was the youngest teacher they had hired uh, at that time for the program. And I thought, wow, he wants to hire me to teach tennis to these kids. And it was such a wonderful and incredible experience that someone saw potential in me and hired me to do this. And I was grateful for that because not only did I have such an early opportunity to exercise some leadership and teaching skills to other kids, but it gave me an opportunity to be grateful because we were going to places like Oakland and teaching in Oakland. And there were kids who could not even get the racket that they had earned because they were basically um, what we used to call latchkey kids. They were locked up in their homes and couldn't come to the last class. And I remember trying to deliver this tennis racket to this one young girl, and she was trying to reach through the mailbox lot because she was locked into her home and we she couldn't open the door. Um, and I remember thinking, I've thought about that a lot over the years, um, and we all struggle. Most of us have some struggles in life. And uh, I, that moment in time made me grateful that while I had struggled as well, that I had this person who believed in me and, and was paying me to teach and to, you know, feel like I was, you know, doing something valuable in the world. And so I'm grateful for that too. And I, I had not talked to Stephen since that year that I taught because he went on to college and I went on um, and I actually left home when I was 17. I finished high school early and then went on to uh, work 
my way through college for 10 years off and on. Uh, but I looked him up in the middle of the pandemic because as many people do during the pandemic and you're in shelter in place, you start thinking about your life and thinking about um, people in the past. And I thought, I wonder if I can find him. And I went looking, looking, I found him uh, on LinkedIn. <laughs> so I went and reached out to him and we got to exchange some emails um, recently. Uh, but he he didn't know how much of an impact he had in my life and believing in me. He was one of the few people early on that that gave me some confidence that I could go do something meaningful. And then lastly, the other person who gave me some sense of meaning was when I was uh, a teacher's assistant in college for a physics professor. I love physics. I did really well in physics. I was the kid that was always doing the extra credit assignments that people would skip out on. <laughs> and she uh, had me as her teacher assistant. And I didn't know what I wanted to be in college. I know I was good at math. For a brief moment, I thought, okay, well, accountants are good in math. Maybe I should become an accountant. And then I found out what accountants actually did. I thought, no, definitely not going to be an accountant. That's not for me. Um, so I was talking to her about that. And she said, you know, they have these roles where you can go and travel the world and go and speak you know, professionally. And I thought, are you out of your mind? Why would I do that? I can barely speak like a few words in front of a classroom. <laughs> There's no way that I'm ever going to go out and stand in front of a bunch in front of a bunch of people and speak publicly. That's crazy. I'm too too nervous to do that. There's no way. Um, and yet, lo and behold, <laughs> I have been doing that for the last decade, if not more, um, speaking in front of audiences. And it it did take time to get used to doing that. Anyway, I've been talking and talking and talking, but um, those were the the three people that stand out that were really a lifeline to me and really believing in me. That's just a shout out to them and to all folks who, you know, who may not appreciate just how pivotal, you know, a positive gesture, action, words can really make in the difference of a young person. And, you know, would you say that you, did you have confidence in these high school years? Um, were you really not confident and these people injected it in you just because it feels like you had the smarts and you knew that you had, you were special, right? You don't get asked in second or third grade to be a TA. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's sort of yeah. just, you know what I mean? Like, so it feels like there must've been some sense of, you know, maybe my parents don't get it, but I know that I've got something within. So I did know that I had, you know, a certain, you know, skill and talent around math and science and reading. And enough that I thought at a very early age, I wanted to be extraordinary. I wanted to be, <laughs> there was a time where I would say, I want to be a mad scientist. I want to be famous for something in science. Um, and uh, I, and I do remember that piece, but I, I didn't end up going down that, that track. And it's not because I didn't want to go into science, but there was sort of this practicality of what I could do while I was working my way through college, um, which is part of the reason why I started thinking maybe I should become an accountant. And then I realized, no, that repetitiveness would not be good for me. Um, and so I didn't really know, and I, I still say this, actually, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And I'm okay with that now because I, I treat my career as 
a lifelong adventure of learning and continuing to grow and expand my skill set and see the world and try new things. Um, and so that that has served me really well. You say the the confidence piece, I did have it, but when you are sort of stomped on regularly and, and told you're not valuable, that you're you're useless or you're stupid or you know worthless or whatever words came out of my dad's mouth, it does become difficult to continue believing in that. Um, words from parents do matter. And, and that was difficult. Um, but I, I think being great at math, I still remember getting up from my exams and acing, uh, knowing, just knowing that I'd aced my math exams and standing up and looking back on the class as I walked out and everybody's sweating it out, knowing, wow, I'm actually really good at this. What's helpful? And those, those times and moments where I could feel like, okay, I, I did something really cool. And that, that also translated in tennis as well. When I would uh, play tennis, and particularly when I was playing tennis with you know, boys, not just other girls. I'm a, you know, you've met me. I'm a small, petite woman. But what surprises people is the strength and power that I would have. Uh, I had a wicked forehand and backhand, and I was really strong and fast and nimble on the courts. So I think that's what would always sort of um, surprise people so much so that in high school, you know, the football players are always kind of walking around like they own the whole campus. And I walked through this um, entrance at the same time a football player was, and he wasn't going to give. And I walked straight through and, and we bumped, we bumped shoulders. And he said, ow, I kept walking. I still remember thinking that was so funny. Anyway. Uh, so little things, <laughs> little things. People would have they would have to see you to appreciate that. That's hilarious. Yeah. And I yeah. will someday we'll get on a tennis court because I have tons to learn from you because I would love to be able to hit with, with more <laughs> wickedness in my forehand and backhand. <laughs> that is so crazy. Okay, college in ten years. You know, for the folks who've had their parents potentially pay for their whole college and just may not appreciate that. Talk to us. Uh, you know, you're obviously intellectually inclined, you've got a practical situation, just help us, you know, understand how you thought about that and the choices you made uh, to, to get your degree in a decade. Oh, well, I mean, I would not have proactively chosen to go to college off and on for a decade. That was hard um, because then you're also choosing to not just work and go to school, but you're sitting aside um, your social life. I mean, I, and I guess for me, it wasn't that much of a sacrifice because reality was I didn't have much of a social life in elementary school or middle school or high school either. So it wasn't perhaps quite the sacrifice that some people might think it was. Um, but it was one of those, well, okay, how much more am I going to just go to school and work? And I had some social pieces in between. I would go to lunch with my colleagues um, and that kind of thing. But I didn't feel like I had that much free time if I was studying on the weekends and at night and going to school. Uh, but there was something in me that felt like if I didn't finish college, that I was I would always feel less than other people. And so that was really important for me to finish that out. And I remember getting towards the end and thinking, I only have maybe a year, less than a year of classes left. And I almost gave up. And I was going to turn 30. And I remember thinking, 
No, it's just really not going to feel good if I don't finish this. I just have to just finish this and I'll be done. I don't need a master's. I don't need to continue going to school. I just want to be done and then go see the world and, and do other things, which is exactly what I did, by the way. I finished out while I was um, at, I was working at Borland at the time as a sales engineer. And I and nobody at work knew that I was still going to college. And I um I I graduated with honors and I I told I finally admitted it to the main sales rep that I worked with. Uh, she was a very bubbly uh woman who had like big blonde curly hair, and she was shocked. She was completely shocked because not only did I win an award that year for my work. I was uh, a top SE in my district at the time, but I, I graduated with honors and she was just flabbergasted. She's like, I had no idea you were doing this and doing great work. I, I, that was a proud moment for me. And I was so happy to have had the opportunity to also just travel the world and do other things and experience a life that I had been so longing for, like really wanting to have. Um, and, you know, in between there where I was working and going to school, I ended up having surgery for my hyperhidrosis. And so that that freed me from this situation where, you know, I was really afraid of people finding out about my condition and how and would I be treated like I was when I was a kid. I found ways of, of, of managing it without the surgery um, when I was in my teens and in my uh, in adulthood, but it was still hard because there were times where it would trigger like profuse, like sloppy sweating. And, you know, I didn't want to be in that kind of social situation. And so when I had the surgery, I suddenly was freed from this, this thing that was really keeping me back and engaging and socializing with other people. It, it was part of the reason why I thought that physics teacher was crazy. There's no way I could ever get up in front of an audience. I'm going to end up being a sweaty, awful mess and no one will listen to me. Uh, well, when I, when I became a sales engineer, that was really stretching. I had already had a career as a software engineer and, and I decided, okay, great. I, I enjoyed that. I loved the, um, the gratitude of seeing my work so quickly become a feature or an application that that was used for me that that felt so good but then at some point by spending so much time coding I, I wanted to see people <laughs> in the world and talk to people outside of my company and you know I love the engineers that I worked with but I wanted to meet other kinds of people and I wanted to go talk to you know other companies and go to other events and do things and so I became a sales engineer at Borland and the first time I, I had to speak in front of more than a few people, it was like 30 people, and it was a government agency in Sacramento, I completely freaked out. It was such a big audience for me for, for the first time. And I remember distinctly, my voice was shaking. I I was physically shaking. And by some sheer will, I continued through my entire presentation and demo. The entire room was like really engaged and looking at me. And they were so kind. I remember being freaked out thinking, oh my God, they're just, they're going to think I'm just so stupid. And what I realized from my experience was the empathy that people had for me in that moment. Because really most of us 
Public speaking is number one fear for most people. It's above death in most people's cases. So I think many of them put themselves in my shoes and they, many of them actually came to me afterwards and were just so gracious and thanked me for you know sharing some new learning, some new um, um, technical uh, pieces for them. And they were so kind and I've always kept that. And as I continue to work through and build my confidence in public speaking, I've always thought about that moment and how kind people were encouraging they were and it took a while for me to get more comfortable in public speaking but that 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 first like breakout session was actually a good thing that I had early on to work through I am so grateful for how real you are about this so that people you know appreciate when people see people on stage is so fabulous I'm you know yes or no that they were not always so fabulous and everybody has to go through some kind of learning journey. And I, uh, um, I can just see you inside shaking, physically shaking and people just kind of just cheering you on through it. I mean, that is just such a wonderful story. You know, let me ask, you know, I think I always use this term transparency is our friend and I really encourage it. And I know, you know you're going to school. You don't want people to know you're having a job. Um, you have this condition and perhaps, you know, not educating people about it or not just not wanting to talk about it. In hindsight, Grace, do you wish you were open about some of that stuff? Would that have made it easier or harder for you, you think, if other people were more aware? You know, I think there was something about growing comfortable in your skin as you get older and more confident. I think that would not have served me well in my 20s. People are so judgmental. It's so like a you know, an extension of your teen years, right? In your twenties. I still remember sort of the mean girls, the fact that I was still encountering well into my twenties. And so now I don't, I don't think that being open and transparent about that condition back then would have been that helpful to me because I really, at that point in time, I was still learning basic social skills. I was winging it. And I did some really stupid things because I had, I didn't have any coaches or mentors for me. And, you know, people just assumed I was intentionally being awkward and weird. And really it was, I was seeing the world for the first time. I was a latchkey kid. I didn't have a whole lot of social experiences growing up other than, you know, the brief amount of time that I was out like playing tennis, but I had to go immediately back home. Um, so I had limited social experiences, unlike, you know, my peers. And so that, that was difficult learning for me in my twenties. And, some of that resulted in me, you know, losing friends and gaining other friends and learning who to trust or not trust. And so I think being that transparent at that time would not de- definitely would not have served me that well. I think as I got older, it was more of a question of like, when's the right time for me to be a lot more open? And I would say that, you know, one of the the hardest lessons I had as a leader, uh, we talk a lot about showing vulnerability as leaders. And I, I I wholeheartedly support that. I think that is the right thing to do. But I will say that if you are in an unfortunate situation where the workplace you're in is already a toxic culture from the top all the way down, that being vulnerable actually will not serve you very well at all. You become a target. And so I learned that the hard way. And I would you know, not ever do that again. In fact, well, for me, I wouldn't stay in a toxic work situation uh, regardless. And I think the the lesson there for me was, 
you know, I tend to, you know, think with a lot of grit and tenacity. You know, I, I will I work my way through the hardest situations, so much so that I've had people comment that I'm cool as a cucumber. <laughs> like the worst situations where other people would have just like fallen apart. And that's good and that's bad because while it might come across as cool as a cucumber inside, like mentally I'm processing a lot of things and I can hold things together pretty well, you know, externally, but there's like, there's a price to pay for all of us in trying to sustain things like that for long durations. And my advice to other leaders is if you're not taking care of yourself, you can't possibly be there for other people, your family, your team, your peers. Um, and so that was that was a difficult thing to learn. And so I think there's always a balance to strike and you always need to really fully understand the context in which you're operating in before you decide to be that vulnerable or that transparent about yourself. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing this up. And I think that's, um, listeners have heard me say, you know, this will say skillfully speaking up, you have to make a judgment call if it's really safe if it's mm-hmm. in fact where leaders want to hear. And since the leaders are the decision makers, if if the environment they set up is one where it's a little more my way, the highway, mm-hmm. then it's there's nothing to do with speaking up. To your point, one has to decide, do I stay or do I go? Mm-hmm. And maybe you could talk to folks, um, you know, when there's environments that you've been in, you know, I could imagine you try to work with it, you try to figure it out and and just your own, you know, your own processing of realizing when something isn't a fit. Um, I think that might be helpful for people because I think sometimes people want, you know, we want to think the best and then we think we can fix it or help it and, you know, just be part of the solution as people here uh, mm-hmm. say, but then at some point you have to really accept the reality for what it is, you know, and I'm, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on how, how you, how well you've done that or how not well, maybe you've stayed in places longer than you wish. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's a perfect art or science to that. And we're all very different individuals coming into um, these situations and no, no company is perfect. And no person is perfect. No leader is perfect. And so your assessment of a situation, you and, and this actually happened to me in a, in a company where it was the perfect comfort, perfect company for me in the beginning. But then things change, right? Leaders change, um, the conditions change for whatever reason. And then it was still like the worst place for me. And that happens. And you're you're probably always sort of constantly assessing, is this the right fit? And if you have like, long periods of time where you're not happy and feeling fulfilled or feeling valued or, you know, whatever the conditions that make you feel good about working, right? So some, for some of us, it's about the money. For some of us, it's about uh, the challenges. For some of us, it's about, you know, feeling valued or um, having the opportunities to grow. And some of it is a combination of all those things. You Only you know what you need in order to be happy in a particular place. And what I would say is if your assessment is short and it's like a, a single incident thing, that's probably not enough to make a rash decision. You should always sort of you know step back and really think about is that, that whatever that incident is enough to make you you know run or walk away or whatever it is that you're going to do. 
it's really the long sustaining situations where you're constantly evaluating, wait, is this the, the right fit? Is this the right place? Do our values align? And that's often the, the question many of us have is, is this place values aligned with me personally? And, you know, at some point, you know, after a few months, you, you have to make that call. And for me, you know, after I, I give, I give things enough time to really assess, am I just, you know, thinking about this, you know, because I'm, I'm stressed out because of a particular of a particular project, or is this really just not the right fit? And it's, it's not a perfect science, but at some point you have to decide what's best for you and your family and your personal well-being, right? And what's going to help you grow and feel fulfilled. Yeah. Yeah. Let's segue that, you know, in a technical field, um, not necessarily tons of women from the Philippines. And I'm just wondering, talk about, um, you know, was that a no brainer? All you felt no hurdles, no bias, all awesome. Just curious on your own experience um, in navigating and coming. Mm. Well, let me start by saying that not only did I grow up with this sort of expectation that I was supposed to be like a housewife or a nurse or a teacher. Um, the Philippines in particular is famous for shipping women, women out. There was this a famous uh, bridal catalog, bridal catalog, not as in wedding dresses, as in here are women that you can buy as wives globally. And um, when Filipino women are being shipped all over the world and landing in, in many cases, unfortunately, in very abusive situations. And so when you're coming from that kind of context into the professional world, um, you know, that that's a bit of baggage, right? Because you're thinking, what am I worth when, you know, my people are being shipped around as products, as, you know, to be bought wives? So that, that certainly didn't feel good. And the other is, you know, most of us are also very small people, you know, um, generally not very tall people in the Philippines, especially if you're a woman. And when you're surrounded by tall white males, you know, in computer science and the bro culture is a very real thing. And, you know, in my time doing software engineering, that also included what I would call one one upmanship where you were constantly trying to prove you're smarter than the other person. Boy, you know, that I would expect for most women is absolutely daunting and not a great experience. Fortunately for me, that didn't trouble me too much because as you know, we just talked about, I was the kid in math class that would get up and ace an exam and see all the other kids sweating it out and walk waltz right out of the room as happy as can be. So, you know, I was competitive by nature anyway. Um, I didn't really participate in the one upmanship. I would just kind of look and shake my head and like, whatever. Uh, but it didn't, it didn't um, keep me from continuing to do great work and continuing to grow. Um, but it being a Filipino woman, the other thing about it is I have not had a whole lot of Filipino people just in general, men or women that I've encountered in my professional career. I think the first time I saw more than one Filipino person in my company was when I worked for Atlassian. And I was so grateful for that experience. I thought, oh God, okay, I'm not the only Filipino person <laughs> in tech. It was great um, 
because other than that, the only other times I would encounter Filipino people in my work was when I was traveling. They were often blue collar workers that you see them often in, in the San Francisco airport. You, you see them all over the world doing um, waitressing or um, you know other blue collar work. You know, they are often the people that are cleaning the rooms in hotels. And I want, you know, people that are like me who are either here in the U.S. or still in the Philippines, because there's there's tech that's growing in the Philippines. And I, I wrote this blog post while I was still at Cisco about breaking the bamboo ceiling. And I did that because I want other people from the Philippines, especially women, to know you can do it. And for those who have made it to go out and speak more, because we need to see that it's possible, right? Because if you don't see that it's possible, other people aren't necessarily going to want to go down that path that hasn't been, you know, walked before by others like them. Uh, it can be really difficult. Not everyone has that courage and tenacity to just keep stepping forward, right? And it's it's hard. Yeah, I appreciate how you're just kind of reaching down the ladder, pulling people up. Let's talk more about what needs to happen, you know, in the, in the context that you've been in that you think would really help, um, whether it's you know, Asian, whether it's women, you know, the folks who I would just say the non-dominant groups, Grace, uh, what's some mm -hmm. perspective if, if you're a leader listening, what are some things that you would love to see people doing? Oh, well, there's so much that we can be doing more of as leaders and the things that I do with with intention, simple things. You're in a group meeting. In a group meeting, there are often people who are very naturally going to speak up and some people who aren't. And so regardless of their background, regardless of whether they're a uh, you know, woman, regardless of you know what color or you know ethnicity or, or culture they come from, if they're quiet, if they're in the room, they probably have something to contribute. And so I'm always looking for the quiet person just in general and immediate and calling on them, not as a pop quiz kind of thing, but to, to invite them to contribute because otherwise meetings become overwhelmed with the loud voices. And not everyone has built that confidence yet to just speak up or to interrupt. And women in particular don't interrupt. If you really listen and look and observe what happens in a lot of meetings, especially in American culture is the men are constantly interrupting each other. And what's funny about that is women always wait for the pause, the polite thing. Uh, and that's okay. But I think that I would encourage women and people in from underrepresented groups to be okay with politely interrupting and inserting themselves in the conversation because you have a voice, you're there for a reason and to contribute. Um, and there will be times where people think that you're the one that's being disruptive and interrupting when they don't realize that they have been interrupting <laughs> the whole time. So it takes some education and it's going to be uncomfortable, but swim in that discomfort. I would encourage people to swim in that discomfort and be cognizant of the differences of the way people engage and find the way to speak up that is comfortable for you, but speak up. Don't hesitate because your voice matters and, and, and know what you can contribute and know how to really engage and, and be present and be visible. It's super important. Yeah, this is a good segue to the Say It Skillfully part of the show. Grace, is there a 
conversation or situation that's uh, challenging for you now or perhaps in the past? I think it's always the educational piece to leaders and your peers about what it's like to be different and to help to help them one empathize and two to be allies like creating more of a community of other allies is always a difficult conversation because you know you're you're sort of operating in this situation of um you're still expected to be a woman, a mother, polite, but engage in a culture where none of those rules exist <laughs> for your male colleagues. And so finding the right way of helping them understand that the dynamics and the social norms are not fair and very biased is a difficult thing to sort of present, right? And how do you do that at scale? And yes, you can go, I, I go out and speak about these things all the time, but the day-to-day work and the colleagues that you have aren't necessarily listening in and tuning into those things. So how do you do that in a way that's appropriate in the workplace and help people really embrace that as a responsibility to you know include people who would otherwise not be included, who are talented and smart and have so much to contribute and, you know, I think we carry a heavy load as particularly women leaders and women leaders of color um, and just finding the right way to encourage those who have a little bit more privilege to consider that, I think, is, is always a, a challenging thing to, to try to do. I appreciate you bringing up and I, it's exactly what needs to happen. And just a few thoughts. I think the um, the idea of helping people be in your shoes um, and not in a judging way, but in a way that says, you know, gosh, I wonder what it's like for you and, and, and being curious. And then, you know, I'm wondering what you think about like what's going on for me and making it, you know, very, not in a prove me doing more and you doing less, but just genuinely being open about conversation and I think a lot of folks would come back and say, you know, I just never get that. You know, I remember my mom worked and on Sundays, my dad had three girls and he basically had to keep us alive where she went to work one day a week. <laughs> but my dad, I think, really appreciated the six other days where my mom did the lion's share. And there's something yeah. about just really you have to do it. So I so I think that there's it, it, there's a, a little trick and I think helping people just consider Wow. And then I have found a lot of men who are super, who are, I think it really helps to hear from like, and if someone is able to say, and I quote back, Lou Platt ran um, HP way, way, way back when, and his first wife, she passed away. So he's in a very early time where it was, everyone had a wife to take care of kids. And he, he was like, wow, this is a totally different deal to raise up, you know, rise up the ranks and not have a wife. Mm -hmm. And, And so I think having folks who are like, you know, leading like can mm-hmm. be very influential to just start to open the door. And I would encourage folks to, yes, it can be frustrating. People don't get it. You know, if people can get it 2% more and mm-hmm. then 2% more, hey, that's progress. That's progress. So I, I know people want it to move faster, but I do think creating the opening and in the spirit of helping people appreciate, you know, I've worked with folks who tend to be the noisies. 
And they're not trying to dominate and come off as, you know, arrogant or I'm better. Mm-hmm. They just don't really know any better. And so they mm-hmm. need some kind of, you know, loving way to help them appreciate, gosh, you know, I know what you really want to help us with. And, you know, this may not be the best way. And how about mm-hmm. this? And let me be an ally to you. Mm-hmm. If you want others to be allies to us, extend the olive branch. So that's just some thoughts there. Um, we could go on and on and on and on. You are such, um, you're, you're amazing. I have to be honest with you. I just, I, I mean, I knew you were amazing, but just hearing what you've come through and I'm very proud of you, Grace, for sharing all that you shared. Cause I know it's not necessarily the most natural or most easy, even though you are on the stage a lot talking about embracing diversity. Um, so I guess I just wrap with a few questions. One is if you, if you think about all that you've done and the things that you've overcome, is there a particular accomplishment you are most proud of? Mm-hmm. Well, there, I think that the thing that was a highlight for me last year, and this is going to be a funny thing, was to get up on a circular stage, a 360 stage, and to not be the speaker freaking out about <laughs> getting up on a 360 stage and literally getting up in the morning and Googling, what do you do on a 360 stage to keep your entire audience engaged that morning and feeling comfortable with just trying to apply a few new techniques because there wasn't any rehearsal or runtime on that 360 stage prior is that you're kind of winging it a little bit. I was happy and I, I had so much fun on that circular stage that I was comfortable. And did I do it perfectly? No, but I felt comfortable. I felt good. I felt like, huh, okay. I have really overcome, like from that time period that I talked about when I was a sales engineer, I was freaking out in front of like 30 people to stand on a circular stage in front of over 2000 people with people also online. So it was being live streamed. And to be engaged and happy and enthusiastic about it was a real highlight for me. I've come a long way. I mean, you know, I would say I'm a, a little bit of a late bloomer to permit for it to take so long to be that comfortable, but I loved it. I enjoyed it. I was really proud. And I was super happy about it. Um, so yeah, I think that was one of like the highlights of some of the many things that I had to work through to get to that stage of uh, that circular stage and feel good about it. I just, I just, just want to surround myself with that sense of growth and your tenacity and your self caring, you know, Grace, it's not easy to be able to balance that. And I think that that comes across in your own groundedness and, and why I know you're such a spectacular leader. So the last question I'll, I'll leave you with is um, share with us what it was like for you to take us through your journey today. It was therapeutic, actually. <laughs> um, I know I, I I feel good about the fact that I am so comfortable in my skin now that I can really share a lot of the challenges that I grew up with growing up and proud of my accomplishments as an adult and, you know, as a kid as well and surviving all that I had to survive and to do so well. Um, and I love that my kids are proud to call me their mom and 
you know, even though I, I like to joke about the fact that I was the bad mom that was watching the bad mom movie with them before they were probably old enough to watch that movie with me. Um, but I, I I'm, uh, you know, I'm just happy to be in a place of, of accomplishment of, of getting out of a really terrible situation that for me could have been devastating. I could have held that as like my cross in life to be a victim for the rest of my life. And I chose not to. So I'm, I'm proud of that. And I am proud of you and I am cheering for you big time. So you know how to reach me any tiny little way I might be helpful to you. I am here for you. You, my friend are a big part of the solution. You uh, inspire us all to find ways to belong uh, you're helping us all be seen and understood and our true and very best selves. Thank you. Thank you. You take good care. Thank you. Oh, so amazing. Okay, folks, my thought for the week is on embracing diversity. And the president of my alma mater, Cornell, weighed in decisively to reject students' requests for professors to give mandatory trigger warnings for content that students might find traumatic or to offer the ability for students to opt out. And from Martha Pollock, Learning to engage with difficult and challenging ideas is a core part of a university education, essential to our students' intellectual growth and to their future ability to lead and thrive in a diverse society. As such, permitting our students to opt out of all such encounters across any course or topic would have a deleterious impact both on the education of the individual student and on the academic distinction of a Cornell degree. I wanna thank President Martha Pollack for this and to my friend Bob Glazer for sharing this um, on his great Elevate newsletter. And that's a wrap, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Grace's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is solvable. Communities are proving it. And it begins by understanding that we can't keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. The U.S. spends billions each year responding, but it's clear more resources alone aren't enough to solve this complex problem. Community Solutions is a nonprofit working alongside 105 U.S. communities, proving it is possible to make homelessness rare and brief, starting with veteran and chronic homelessness. These cities and counties are fundamentally changing their approach and have committed to get to zero homelessness using real-time, person-specific data to work and use their resources wisely. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org. See if your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name and need? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness can't be solved. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out sayitskillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too.